Right, good afternoon. I'm Robin Williams. Welcome, and welcome to our two Peters and one Chris. And we're here to uh, make you all very worried. No, you're probably already worried now. But uh, the one thing that worries me is you are at this very moment missing the science show, <laughs> which gives you a great deal to be less worried about. Because in the program that you might catch up on, you'll find that there is an incredible movement in certain energy technologies. Uh, just published in the journal Nature a couple of weeks ago was fusion power, if you remember that, where they zap a tiny piece of hydrogen and get fusion power which could look after our needs for, is it million, one million or two million years? Uh, then there's uh, solar energy, solar power, which could be so efficient now that it could be cheaper than fossil fuels to run the grid now. Then we've got uh, energy from poo and energy oil, actually, from algae. So much promising to make a difference in terms of 21st century technologies instead of 19th century ones. So, as you know, the uh, 19th century ones are having a dramatic effect on biodiversity. We're here to look at ways in which biodiversity may be affected by what's happening in terms of development and other human impacts on the natural world. We have two Peters and a Chris. Peter Owen is next to me, and he actually lives in Tasmania and uh, is a lawyer, is connected to the Wilderness Society, and I'm going to go through the panel one by one to ask them essentially for five to seven minutes what they're on about, then we'll have a chat, and then we'll ask you to have a chat with us. So first of all, Peter Owen. Okay, you probably know a lot of these facts. I mean, the the population's going up at about 200,000 people per day. That's 80 million a year. Um, greenhouse gases have increased by 60% since 1990. Um, vegetation clearance on the planet, we've cleared probably half the planet in Australia since European settlement. We've cleared most of <laughs> the vegetation in the east. Uh, you know, probably 30% of our, our continent here is being cleared. So habitat loss is, is pretty serious. And now, I guess on the top of all of that, we have a fairly rapidly changing climate, which is largely driven by a factor of all those things. Um, we now have governments in place at, at state and federal levels that are looking at winding back a lot of the environmental legislation that's evolved over the last 20, 30 years fairly rapidly so we can continue on our merry way of digging up as much as we can and cutting down as much as we can, rolling back World Heritage Agreements, massively expanding the fossil fuel industry, to you know, doubling it in fact or more. Um, you know, whilst Australia is, I agree, uh, internationally only a, a fairly small domestic emitter, if you in include our exports of coal, you can quadruple the size of that, and then if you consider the expansions to the export coal industry that are currently uh, being pushed through, you can double or triple that again. Australia is the biggest exporter of coal in the world. We have to stop digging this stuff up, otherwise there, there is very little, very little hope, I think, uh, in dealing with a lot of the issues that we're now facing. We have to very quickly wean ourselves off this old technology and uh, capitalise on the opportunities that Robin has emphasised there in terms of renewables. I mean, this is a big thing for us to do. So, so much of our economy is geared around uh, past, past structures and, and the maintenance of the status quo, but we, we don't have that privilege now. We, we actually have to change, uh, unless we do it in the next decade or so, um, you know, we're in serious trouble. There are a lot of scientists that will argue we're in serious trouble now. And you've all, you've all heard all this, and it's, it's starting to sound like a broken record, but you know, those facts are worth keeping, keeping in your minds. We, you know, the, the governments that we currently have in place in this country are rapidly expanding the size of the, the coal export industry in this country. Uh, Australia is fast becoming a rogue fossil fuel nation. Uh, we're going to be on the nose in a big way in the, next, in the next period. We may well see sanctions against our country in the next decade or so. We may, we may see all sorts of international litigation 
uh, when people start to recognise the severity of the issues that we're now facing climatically and those issues are being driven by the burning of fossil fuels, uh, coal being probably the worst of those. Um, so that's out there. Some positive things. We need to rapidly, rapidly uh, reconnect our land and seascapes. Given that the climate change that's already happening, unless species can move and adapt to the changing climates that we're now seeing, and I'll, and I'll focus this just on Australia, we've got a, a protect, protected area system, world heritage areas, wilderness areas, conservation national parks, etc. Unless we connect all of those isolated pockets of remnant uh, fairly quickly to allow those species to move through large corridors and adapt to the changing climate that is already happening, that is already locked in, we're going to see a phenomenal species extinction. Now, a lot of this work is already happening, which is a positive, a positive news story, but people really have to get behind that and, and, and push governments to fund these programs. Um, because, like I said, if we don't, we're probably talking another 50% of species going extinct by mid-century at the most, maybe more. And as I'm sure you know, Peter's going to say later on, that's not, not, not necessarily a bad thing. There are opportunities associated, associated with that. But you know, a phenomenal species extinction that we're currently facing uh, is, is something that we can, to a, to, a, to a small degree, avoid if we can get behind some of these big landscape and seascape reconnection restoration programs creating pathways and corridors between our protected areas to allow species to move and adapt to the realities that they're now facing. Peter, what you just said mm. makes me inclined to give up. Mm. Why should I not give up? I don't think giving up's an option. Um, life is too precious to give up. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly stacked against us. We're going, uh, we're going at a million miles an hour into a brick wall at the moment. There's no doubt about it. Um, but there are, there are alternatives, like you say, uh, renewable energy. We, we must move in this direction fast. We must start funding environmental programs. Uh, there is no alternative here. And the longer we all <laughs> allow that not to happen, um, the more we're, I guess, guaranteeing a, a fairly bleak future. But there are a number of commentators, not least Bjorn Lomborg mm. and Matt Ridley, and I could extend the list, who say that this is the best of all possible times. The news is very good, pretty well universally. Progress is being made, and uh, stop talking it down. What do you say to them? Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's an odd thing to say, uh, in my view. I mean, if, if, you look at <laughs> if you look at what is happening on the planet, and you're honest and objective about that, it is undeniable that there is a serious, serious problem. Um, and, and we know the drivers of, those, of that problem and we need to make those, those changes rapidly. We need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels quickly. We need to get behind renewable energy. We need to look at reconnecting our ecosystems and allowing species to adapt to the inevitable changes that are already locked into the system. If we don't do this, given the fact that we know all this, our, the best science in the world tells us these things. That's all we can, we've got to go by. You can run around poo-pooing what our, our leading experts in the world are saying, but at the end of the day, they're the best pe people to listen to. They're saying that these, these are the key issues uh, that we need to address now and in the future. We, we have to do this. There is, there is no alternative. Thank you, Peter. And it's interesting that this week, once more, Ove Hugh Goldberg, the Professor of Marine Science at the University of Queensland, did remind us that 50% of the coverage of coral on the Great Barrier Reef has gone. 50%. So the evidence that uh, Peter Aaron just talking about is there. Our next speaker talking about uh, the threats to biodiversity. First we've heard climate change. Now it's a question of population. And uh, Chris Daniels is from the University of South Australia. Chris. Thank you very much, Robin. Yeah, well, I can continue with the, uh, the story of, of misery and, and appall that... Um, we certainly face between now and uh, 2100. Um, so I will, and I think I'll just make a couple of points fairly briefly <laughs> before you all uh, want to commit suicide. And that is that, from my perspective, there are two incredible threats uh, to, to the planet. The first is the sheer number of us. And it is incredibly difficult to get your head around the fact that, that there's well over seven billion of us now. Uh, when I was born, you can get an app, you know, that will calculate how many people were born when you, 
were on the planet when you were born. And so when I was born on 8th of May 1960, there were 3.64 billion people on the planet. When I turned 50, we had 7 billion. And if I make it to 90, there'll be 11 billion people on the planet. There's never been that sort of change. There probably never will again either. And the impact of the sheer number of people, the resources they use, the space they occupy, and the quality of life that they want is an, a huge driver for um, change and actually for, for damage to the environment. The second thing is where are those people? They have moved into cities. We are now looking at 50% of the world's population live in cities. We have about 26 or 27 cities that are approaching 30 million people. And they're only the single cities. You, we haven't even got into the, you know, the merged cities like San Diego and Los Angeles and uh, there's a whole swag of others around the place. And we could be literally facing a 100 million person city by the time we get um, into 2100s and, and from then on. So these cities are then exerting really powerful effects on the planet themselves, both through the energy that they use, the water that they take and demand. Because most cities are put on the, um, the best water, the best land, the best agricultural land. And so we're looking at the moment at a water deficit. Currently the world has about a 3% water deficit. By 2100 it'll be up to 40%. So we can expect really significant wars for water um, around the world by the time we get to this, the end of this century. All because there's so many of us. The second bad bit that, that really worries me is the rejection within Western countries of science as a way of knowing. We, we have created our community, for good or bad, really around the fact that we collect information and we collect it in a very specific way, the scientific way of collecting information, and we use that information to plan forward, to understand what's happening to, to our planet. And this is, it's a logical and rational way. It's got us to here, and it's, it's led us to have all of the great discoveries and developments that, that we cherish. Yet our societies are moving towards belief systems. You know, I believe in climate change, or I don't believe in climate change. You know, I believe in vaccination. The moment we move away from science as a way of knowing, and therefore as a way of planning, um, of developing, of changing into belief systems, which are not based on fact or information, we get ourselves into a real problem. And it really concerns me that much of our leadership is allowing belief as an equal argument to the science as a way of knowing. And that's leading to some decisions that are, are really quite terrifying to me. So that's the bad news. The good news is that we have seven billion people on this planet. And that means there are a lot of people who can change a bit. And there are a lot of great people out there who will come from those seven billion who will change the earth. We were just commenting how important it would be out of seven billion to dig up a few more Robin Williamses throughout the planet. And that's, we only need probably a couple more and we'd be, be in a completely different situation. So the capacity to change if you have a huge population is much greater than if you have a small population. And I think that we can see that also change can be a grassroots change. So those communities have the right to say no, have the right to say we want this sort of environment or that sort of environment for our children, for our grandchildren and for the succeeding generations. And I think we are seeing some significant movement from those seven billion people into recognising the sorts of things that Peter was just saying and going, I want to put a stop to that. So they are driving a lot of the, the changes. And we can see this through movements such as the biophilia movement that was started by E.O. Wilson and has really taken off. The idea that the environment is not just something that a handful of middle-aged men worry about and it's not important to the rest of the world, that we actually need the environment in order to have quality of life, to be able to exist on this planet. We can't live without birds, without trees, without a direct connection to nature. And that has led to a way of thinking about cities differently, that nature is actually part of the city, the, um, 
the community and we need it. We need parks like the ones that, that we have here and we need people connected. We have seen changes in the way that we want our kids to interact with nature. Think about Richard Louv's book, which is just about the most depressing book you could ever read, Last Child in the Woods. I've never been able to get through it. I just wind up throwing it at the dog because <laughs> it argues that we now have kids who haven't climbed trees, that we have cities where kids don't ever see anything living. So when they do see an animal in a zoo or in a museum, they just have no connection with it. It's, it's bizarre. It may as well have come from another planet in deep space. So how do we connect those kids with nature and their kids and their kids? Because we simply can't have multiple generations growing up without any connection with nature because how are they going to solve the sorts of issues that Peter had developed? And so we've seen nature play come as a result of that. And it's now spread throughout Western Europe, the US, Australia. These are ways that, that families, that communities, that schools, that clubs can connect with kids. And the other thing that's really come up around science is that's undergone a revolution too with the um, embrace of citizen science and of getting the community to participate in the data collection and the data analysis. So it is science-led, but it's by getting the community to understand the process of science as a way of knowing, the asking of questions, the analysis of data, the limitations of data. So that no, we don't come up with facts that will solve a problem immediately, but we add information to the pool that leads us to make better, more logical, more rational, more informed decisions. That has been a really powerful movement. So I'm incredibly excited about the citizen science as a way of moving us from a I believe to not believe into a knowledge system. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like actually to expand on that because, thank you. Crowdsourcing, as it's called, it's been going for some time actually in astronomy. And uh, I don't know whether you've heard of Galaxy Zoos, took, mm -hmm. started off in Oxford. And uh, it was categorization of galaxies. There were two different sorts. And the student who was looking at them, about a million of them, realized he'd be 275 by the time he'd finished sorting them. So he put the stuff out on the net and invited everyone between the ages of 6 and 96 to take part. The first thing that happened, the server melted. Yeah. <laughs> People were so keen. The second thing that happened was they were connected, the public, with real authoritative scientists who knew what they wanted, and so that gap that you talk about was bridged. The third thing that happened was that the public, looking at these pictures, spotted stuff that the scientists were too busy to notice. Oh. They saw other things. The fourth thing that happened, and there's an example in Tasmania called Red Map, where you take pictures in the ocean of fish, birds, creatures, who may be further south or north than they usually are, and you can sort out what's happening on the ground in your area, and you're connected to your place, not just the whole big world. This is amazing, isn't it, Chris? Absolutely, Robin. I mean, you've, you've just really encapsulated the importance of citizen science. And it can be tens to hundreds of thousands of people. There's a big bird count that goes on, one in the US and one in England. It started with a handful of people and have now got people counting birds in their backyards and there are thousands upon thousands of people. And it also is a statement that people do want to participate in science and understand that our way out of this mess is through the scientific process. So this is a message that we also need to, get to make sure is picked up by our political leadership. Welcome to the People Revolution. Yeah. And our third speaker, another Peter, Peter Ward, uh, has been abroad, but he's now back. He's at the University of Adelaide. Peter. Yeah, thank you, and thanks to the organizers of this. I think the University of South Australia should get a great shout out. But I also want to thank my new uh, people who pay me, University of Adelaide. I was at the University of Washington in Seattle for 30 years. Cities come and cities go, and intellectual centers come and go. And I think you folks of Adelaide, you are just starting to see this place become one of the great intellectual centers of the world. I am so proud to be here. Now, I think of the University of Adelaide as our MIT, but it's got heart. MIT doesn't have arts. So I was so pleased to be able to leave my fat, cushy job and become a lecturer here. So thank you for having me. Um, I kind of think of this, well, wait a minute, after I've given a few of the lectures, they may not be clapping. <laughs> I kind of think of, 
of the situation we're in as the Dickinsonian great story, A Christmas Carol, where you've got a ghost of Christmas past, the present, and the future. In the 1980s, R.E.M. wrote the song, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Well, we're now in a new century, and I think a lot of us don't feel fine. We're not going to be singing that song. And we do have the power to change it. I mean, the realization, seven billion people is too many for all of us to live with the way we do want to live. But there's the reality, there are seven billion people. Today is International Women's Day. Women brought the, the greatest problem when there's poverty. In this world, if we do not raise standards everywhere, we raise standards nowhere. Now, I studied deep past. I studied deep time in the fossil record. Um, it was very almost comforting when Bruce Willis saved the world in the movie Armageddon because mass extinctions were always thought to be giant rocks from space. And I mean, how could you get out of the way of that? But now we know that every one of the past mass extinctions, including that that killed the dinosaurs, was caused by too much carbon dioxide. And in the past, it was volcanoes. Now it's Volvos, although I shouldn't beat up on that because I owned a Volvo. <laughs> But carbon dioxide is carbon dioxide. And when we get up to levels that are about 1,000 ppm, and we're 400 right now and going up two per year, we know from the deep time that whenever there has been 1,000 parts per million carbon dioxide, there have been no ice sheets. Two types of ice. Ice sheet sits on a continent. Every bit of ice on an ice sheet that melts causes sea level to rise. So to me, the greatest threat of sea level change that is going to affect us in our lives is the rise of sea level. I mean, you in Adelaide, you know that you've got the ocean very close and the salt moves sideways and that you cannot have certain types of agriculture, even around your city, because of salt infiltration. If we raise sea level even a meter or a meter and a half, yes, you've buried a lot of countryside, but the salt gone sideways makes it way, way worse. A great deal of the rice on this planet is grown at areas where a meter to a meter and a half of sea level rise is going to wipe it out. We can have an intersection of sea level rise and 11 billion people. So I, we, it is dire. You think, well, it's not in my lifetime. Yes, it is. And it's in our, our children's lifetimes and after that. So the deep time is really, really stark in a way. George Satanyana said that those who ignore history are condemned to repeat it. And when you see that word condemned, I mean, that's the sort of the scariest, darkest side of it. But what we're ignoring in any of the climate change debate, I really do think is deep time. And deep time has told us then when CO2 goes up really fast, and it's been short-term volcanism, we produce mass extinction. We even know now the dinosaurs, yes, the coup de gras of the KT extinction 65 million years ago was indeed the Chicxulub asteroid. But I've been five times to Antarctica, and we've been studying just beneath that, the 50 to 75,000 years prior to that impact. And there was a huge flood basalt in India called Deccan. They raised carbon dioxide levels from about 800 to over 2,000 over a period of 50,000 years, and all kinds of things died out. So we have, at this point, I, I kind of think of this in the 1930s, really bad alcoholics died because there was no hope. And then Bill W. came along, and the first step was admitting there's a problem. We now admit that climate change can be a problem. We need to understand how bad the problem is. And that's where deep time comes in. Deep time can tell us, yeah, I mean, this is more than just a problem. A problem is an unbalanced checkbook. Uh, but a worse problem is you're walking up the guillotine and there's no way out of it. So we've got a problem. We've got a problem that we have time to work on. And as Chris said, we've got 7 billion people. And to me, the most important thing, if anything can be taken away from these types of gatherings, it is how powerful each of us is. Each of us uses enormous quantities of energy. We eat a lot of food. Think about all the burgers you've had in your lifetime if you eat meat. I mean, each of us has an enormous thumbprint that a very slight change in any of our lives multiplied by 7 billion has tremendous consequences. Uh, the dinosaurs got wiped out. Mass extinctions, you can say, were really the, the road to opening up new types of life, and there's a certain goodness in it. But after the worst mass extinctions, there were dead periods for hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Now, we really don't want that. I think we can engineer our way out of this. I think we need to do science. I think we all need to be able to sacrifice. But if we give up hope, that we've lost. So I think I'll stop there and hand it back over. Thank you, Peter. One thing that uh, some of the critics of the climate science come out with is the connection between 
high levels of CO2 and climate sensitivity. And you're telling me that there's evidence in the past that high CO2 past the levels we've experienced at the moment, 400 parts per million, does show a rise in temperature. The evidence is there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's beautiful. Uh, fossil plants give us all we need to know. I live, I used to live, I live here now. Uh, Seattle, Washington has beautiful 50 million year old palm trees everywhere. And let me tell you, Seattle, Washington is not this beautiful day that you're seeing here. It's a cold, miserable place. Everybody says, what a great city, except it has the second highest suicide rate on the planet, only after Uppsala, Sweden, where even more dour Swedish people jump off bridges. I mean, <laughs> That Why does Bill Gates live there then? Uh, he's barely there. <laughs> he can afford to leave. You really can see from the rocks that we had these palm trees. Now the trees themselves, the fossil leaves, tell us what the carbon dioxide level is. When carbon dioxide is very high, leaves themselves have these little portals to let the CO2 in for photosynthesis. If there's plenty of CO2 around, these tiny little holes in them, there's not very many of them. If carbon dioxide is very low, you've got to have a lot of little entrees to get that CO2 for photosynthesis. You can measure them. We can come up with an absolute measure, plus or minus 50 ppm, from a fossil plant. Those tropical plants only lived in the heat, and they tell us carbon dioxide was over 1,000 when we were 50 million years ago. So we get direct measures. Yeah. Now, Peter Owen, it seems to me that there are a number of things that we could do. Uh, sometimes the cliche goes, low-hanging fruit. And one of them that struck me this week, there is now a coal fire in a coal mine going on in Victoria. It's been burning for four weeks. Some of these fires in holes have been going since 1962, and there are thousands of them. And the estimate is that they produce about 3% of the world's greenhouse gases. That's the equivalent to airlines. It's extraordinary, just burning away, and no one has done anything because it costs too much or something. Now, when you consider that the internet is twice the amount, say 6% of the greenhouse gases, the little old internet that no one takes much notice of, surely there are areas, I don't know whether you've thought about these fires in coal mines, but um, <laughs> it seems to me that someone ought to get off their ass and do something about it and there would be a substantial saving. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as I said before, this country, this planet needs to wean itself off coal and more coal mines really, really, really fast. Yeah, but these are fires that nobody wants anyway. Yeah, well, as to how, how to put some of them out, I mean, people are grappling with it's, you know, it's a complicated surely predicament a hole we've gotten ourselves in. There's a hole with a fire in it. Mm. I mean, we, just, we, we went to the moon in 1969. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard. No, well, you'd think not. Um, you know, coal is a massive issue. It's, it's shaping our future, and we need to get, get away from it really fast. What other examples are there where we could make a substantial impact on the emissions, do you think, that, uh, uh, as uh, Peter Ward was saying, if you've got uh, 7 million people trying something, as mm. Chris was saying, what would you like to see happening that could make a difference quite quickly? Well, I'd like to see us, see us wean ourselves off coal real fast. I'd like to see, I mean, even in our backyard here in, in South Australia, we've got two probably of the biggest fossil fuel basins that are yet to be exploited sitting here. One's called the Arkaringa Basin in central South Australia. One's called the Bight Basin off the coast here. And right now we've got projects being fast-tracked into both of those areas to open them up. We need to stop that. That is madness, opening up more and more fossil fuel basins at, in 2014. Arkaringa, I think, is as much coal as probably in all of the US. It's a massive coal deposit. And However, may I say that Andrew McKenzie, the chief executive of BHP Billiton, mm. this week in Houston said, okay, he said we need to reduce our emissions, but he also said there's no way that the poorer countries, the big developing countries, are going to wean themselves off coal mm. in our lifetimes. What do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, th these are really, really complicated questions. I mean, I, I think we need to get behind and massively sub subsidise the fast-tracking of renewable energy, um, you know, and get it into these countries very quickly. I mean, the World Bank, some of these big international institutions needs to step up and drive essentially a war footing in terms of the urgency that we need to move on a lot of these areas, because that's, 
that's the severity of the predicament we're in. There's amazing things that can happen when the urgency is recognised and we've got to, you know, be honest with ourselves, be honest with our planet and uh, make those moves. Is it not the case that fossil fuels, coal, oil, get massive subsidies, uh, billions? Yes, it is. What, why do they need them? They don't. Why does it happen? <laughs> billions. Well, the fossil fuel lobby is very, very influential. Chris. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was actually thinking about um, the way you asked that question about what should we be doing. And it, um, I was just actually thinking from, from my perspective, the answer is participate. Mm. Peter made some really important points about the large organisations and the World Bank and governments need to do it. Governments and World Bank really respond to the individuals. And uh, if we aren't driving them, uh, then they won't do it. In fact, the, the vested interests come and stand out here. So we, we really need to be, as individuals, participating in everything and not letting anything go through to the keeper. In this state, you know, we have only 1 million, 1.2 million people, 1.3 million people living in South, South Australia, which is the size of Western Europe. And yet we had, effectively, we had three icon species pretty much go extinct last year. The, the fairy penguins, the giant cuttlefish and garfish. Um, there are a few little garfish around the place and there's one penguin somewhere staggering around. But they, are, they have effectively disappeared on our watch. That's all of us here. Was there much of a furor? There was a little bit. But we haven't really demanded that the government do something, that anybody do something. And that's three icon species. Imagine all the little species that we don't think about, all the insects, all the, the, the crustaceans, all of the little fish that no one cares about. What's happening to them and what's happening, therefore, to things like the Gulf ecosystems, to the desert ecosystems? All of these are also being degraded and we're letting it go. So the most important thing is participate by engaging in the debate. You know, Chris, quite a few people in South Australia are pushing the nuclear option. Barry Brook from the University of Adelaide, Terry Cree from Port Lincoln, on it goes. Is that an option? It is an option. It is, a, and, and it's an option we need to take incredibly seriously because, as both Peters have said, we're, we're finished with fossil fuels. There, yeah. there is no way forward with that. We can survive on it for a little while, but in the end, it's a dead option. And it's a little bit like people trying to sell horse-drawn carriages when there are other options around the place. They might have the right lobby group, might be powerful marketing forces, but it's finished. So what are the options? Solar, renewable energies, they are progressing at an enormous rate, and nuclear is also becoming safer and cheaper every day. So why are we not embracing those options? We're closing down our own brown coal at Lee Creek. Should we be buying coal from Victoria and New South Wales, or should we think, be thinking about these other options? Peter Ward, you were nodding when we mentioned nuclear. We're faced with triage in some cases, and I still believe that coal is the worst possible thing. Just look into the fossil record. If we keep burning coal, there will be a mass extinction. These are called greenhouse extinctions. The way they work is, unfortunately, as the planet warms, the tropics don't get much warmer, but the poles do. This is why the Arctic ice is disappearing. Now, why do we care if we have a warm pole and a warm tropics? If they're the same temperature, there's no heat redistribution. Ocean currents slow down. It creates deep water stagnation. The bottoms of the oceans lose their oxygen. It works its way up. And very nasty microbes that produce hydrogen sulfide eventually hit the atmosphere. These greenhouse extinctions are the cause of every one of the great big mass extinctions in the past. If we move forward, it's got to be through education. It has to be through embracing science. I come from a country, there's a sense in the world that the United States is a technical country. You can't be considered a technical country when half of your population does not believe in evolution. And that a, th a third of them believe the Earth was formed 6,000 years ago. The way forward, healthcare is eating up so much of American money. The University of Adelaide is pushing healthcare, but not healthcare when you're in the hospital bed. But preventative measures, why do we do things that get us not in the hospital bed in the first place? 
why don't we do something with the environment that keeps us healthier before we get into those hospital beds? We've also got to embrace science in terms of agriculture. Again, there's a very scare tactic going on. A, a lot of the GMOs, a lot of the genetically modified organisms are indeed horrible. The nuclear option I find horrible. But on the other hand, we have to move forward. A more horrible option is doing nothing, using coal, and more and more people go into poverty. I'd rather have, at least through education, at least through the universities, keep them funded, keep moving forward. Were you saying that the GMO option in agriculture is a good idea, or it gives you the horrors? It gives me the horrors because of the possibility of monstrosities. On the other hand, at this stage, we are beyond the ability to say we're just not going to do it for moral grounds. We have to use science to make crops better. Monsanto, one of the worst companies on the planet, put in genes that allow pesticides to get to the wrong creatures. Genes jump. On the other hand, we need to produce crops that could grow in salt water. We need a mangrove that's going to give us a pineapple. We have to use science forward instead of labels. But you seem before to be putting GMOs all in one lump. Surely they're as varied as their you know, chemicals are for anything. That's the problem with the labels, isn't it? Depends it? on the case. It's just we, we, we pigeonhole things. So again, we have to be technical and we have to be intelligent. It seems rather ludicrous that Europe, for instance, has been developing uh, potatoes that are not affected by blight, but they're banned, and so you have the most gigantic loss of crops for no reason. And a monstrous potato is something I've not yet come across. <laughs> it's interesting that the first Prime Minister Science Prize that was then called the Australia Prize was won by a botanist from Adelaide who developed a sort of engineering that eliminates certain genes. It was a brilliant piece of science. But he was amazingly attacked uh, because it seemed to be into this GM horror box. But uh, Chris, you're about to say. Well, that, I was just actually going to reinforce that point. Uh, we, we now are seeing GM crops appearing in North Africa, for example, where they need to be heat tolerant, they need to be salt tolerant, and have much less water because there's going to be less free water around the place. So you mustn't put them all in, in some boxes. We, we do tend to think about the Frankensteins and the monsters that people were saying. But at the same time, already GM crops are saving millions of lives. The trick, as you really pointed out, is it's about the fact that science is an ongoing process, that it has got us into this condition because it's enabled us to be 7 billion people because we don't die of plagues anymore and, and all those horrendous deaths. But then there, it's, there are more situations that come from that and we have to keep rolling forward. And that the, these, in fact, many of the, the, the people who call the, the greenies, you know, the, the people who want to stop things, are actually those who want to keep everything in a 1970s style economy with 1970s style activities. Whereas all of these new sciences are in fact incredibly exciting and are going to be the way out of this, this mess we're in. Well, we're talking about biodiversity and biodiversity is all a bit like your own personal health. Everything seems to be going fine until one element suddenly crashes you hadn't noticed and then lots of other things crash. And the interaction of all these different plants and animals on a stupendous scale I mean, when you think that if you pick up a handful of soil, there are as many microorganisms in that handful of soil there as people who have ever lived, say, 8 billion? Just imagine the complexity of an ecological unit. So now ask the questions. Um, we know that science has been around and scientific method has been around for hundreds of years with us but it also keeps changing, keeps moving, keeps advancing. So what was um, a true, in scientific terms, 200 years ago is not longer now, okay? Uh, and I want to talk a bit about the belief system. The qu this question goes back to belief systems. If you could put your question rather yes. than... And this is not about the climate skeptics because we know what their motivations are, or it's not about religious belief systems. But there are other indigenous and aboriginal belief systems which are quite important ways of seeing what our reality, our reality is. Is there any way that we can incorporate indigenous and aboriginal belief systems in this conversation? Because it seems to me that science is the only way of seeing things under your 
Thank you. What well, you seem to be saying is looking at uh, a rather more general view of the world rather than too narrow one. Yes, I think that's that's exactly right. There's a slight difference between having a belief. I believe, you know, I believe in vaccinations. I believe in climate change. I believe in, and the belief system that incorporates the earth as as part of how we're living here. Um, any any belief system that does that, and indigenous ones do this the best of all, uh, has a real place in understanding management. So science is a way of knowing, of collecting information, of sorting information, and of being able to work with it to come up with a rational answer. There are a lot of different ways you can manage, and that's where those sort of indigenous systems become useful. Peter Ward. Yeah, well, science never proves anything. I've never proven anything in my life. All science can do is disprove things. I mean, all you can do are knock hypotheses down and others come up. We don't prove a thing. I don't know if I'm going to drop a coin, it's going to, go, it's going to drop. I'm pretty well sure it might. But it's all about disproving. Yeah, I'll just say that uh, I broadcast something from the AAAS meeting. It's in the science show two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And that is systems science, where you put all these different disciplines together. You know, the mathematicians are talking to the engineers who are talking to the biologists, and they're all talking about cancer. It's not just the doctors talking about cancer. You're getting a bigger view, more information, and this is really exciting stuff. Okay, I'd like to ask the two Peters to comment on what I thought, on what I thought was possibly dangerous in what Chris said about population. Because it seems to me that it's very easy for listeners to slide into blaming the poor people of the world who have five or six children who consume almost uh, very, very little and emit very little, compared with somebody like myself living in Adelaide who only had two children, but I'm 72. And I will, with the advances in science, I'll live another 20 years and I will consume an enormous amount of research on longevity that's going on. And I'll be contributing far more to emissions than the people in poor countries having five children. Chris. You're absolutely correct. Um, the, there is such a disproportionate amount of resource use that even when you think of seven billion, you can't treat them all as a homogeneous group. Um, and in fact, Western, uh, uh, Western countries have a lot to answer for, for, the, for the, the way we have disproportionately used resources. What we're now also seeing is the growth of India and China. Um, who are demanding the same lifestyle that you and I lead. Well, if you've suddenly got another one, two, three billion people wanting an air conditioner, a refrigerator and a car, we're in a really, really difficult spot. But we can't morally say they shouldn't have it because traditionally they've never had it. So that's one of our great challenges. The other important thing to remember is that of the seven billion people, there's pretty much three billion who are completely disempowered around the world, and that is women. And the most important step we can do is to empower women through um, a whole array of equalisation activities across the world. And that will also bring down population growth and change the standard tremendously. The massive inequality between males and females on a world scale is, is a huge issue that we have to solve. Peter Owen. Yeah, look, I, I agree with what Chris said. I mean, we, we've got to fundamentally look at ourselves. Um, there's no point blaming anyone. Everyone's actually got to look at themselves and ask some fundamental questions around their lifestyles and the sustainability of that, etc. I mean, I, I felt for a long time we could live the ab absorbent lifestyles that we have in the West, being relatively small in terms of our population, etc. But you sell our consumerist model to where the majority of people live in this world and then encourage them to, you know, think that we're living some utopian vision and then they... <laughs> They adopt that consumerist model, which is what we're seeing now. You're going to have a phenomenal problem. Um, ultimately, we've all got to really look within ourselves, come back to basics, and ask what actually is essential here. Are our lifestyles completely unsustainable or not? Sure, we can't say to someone, "You can't have what I actually take for granted." That's absurd. But you know, this change has to actually come from within everyone, and we've actually got to ask some really, you know. <laughs> really serious questions and just, just be honest. And, and One of the serious, questions, serious answers could be about, okay, rather than feeling guilt, what do we do about it? Mm. And I've got a friend called Jeremy Leggett, who's the solar king in Britain. His uh, patron for solar aid used to be Kate Blanchett. And what he does is substitute the kerosene killer lamps that exist mm. in zillions of different slums around the world 
in Africa and especially South America and Asia. And for $6, you've got a solar lantern, which enables the kids to study. It stops some of the two million people a year who die of kerosene poisoning. And that makes a gigantic impact, not least because it's the basis of a village industry, because they can then take over and run the business themselves, which is very exciting. Question there, please. What I really want to ask is why, when we have panels such as this one, we don't also have an expert from the social sciences. Because it seems to me, and I don't wish to be unkind, but it is naive to imagine that society is going to change in the way that we would like it to in the short space of 10 or 20 years. Sorry, rubbish. So the problems we face are social problems as well as scientific. So I just want to the panel could comment on that. Peter, you're a lawyer, aren't you, a social scientist? Yeah, um, I agree with what you're saying. I, I don't have much to add. I mean, it's... it's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Look, absolutely it yeah. is. And in fact, you can think of, of how many scientists have come up with solutions that are completely unacceptable to community because they haven't connected with social scientists um, and with um, um, policy makers and those that actually understand the, the way the community feels. You can think about poor old Hugh Possingham and, and koalas in Kangaroo Island in 1990 was a good example and you know, he wound up leaving the state. Uh, so you're quite right. We, we actually do a huge amount of our work now with social scientists for exactly the reasons you say. What was wrong with Hugh Possingham's approach? Well, um, he took, I guess, a very dry scientific approach around how to best manage koalas on Kangaroo Island, which is the old 303 type measure, that you can cull them, that you can reduce their numbers um, in an easy culling manner completely unacceptable to the community and to the overseas community. Uh, there was a great deal of, of backlash towards that and that whole program was scrapped. It's scientifically highly valid, highly valid. It's actually pretty efficient in terms of dollars, but it is just not acceptable to the community. So scientists can't work alone, partly, yeah, if he had worked with a social scientist who could understand why koalas are, mean so much to us and why we bond with them and we hold them in such high standard and why the Japanese do and many other people from all around the world, then that solution would not have been tabled, but another one would have, and we would have been able to move forward more effectively. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think that the, uh, for me, I've, I've looked at this for a long time and I, I feel like the root cause of what we're facing as humanity on this planet is that we've built structures around the need to create more and more profit. Okay, so when we're looking at any sort of environmental problems that are happening, and they're, they're very solid, solid science behind needing to make the changes, unless they're profitable, they don't get done. So, you know, I, I, I feel like there's really uh, a great need for humanity to start creating structures that are not focused on making money but come back to actually focus on what's important for our survival, which is focusing on the planet and looking after it. So I'd like to hear your comments. Peter Ward. Uh, I mean, that, who wouldn't agree with that? But what are we gonna do about it? I wanna go back to the previous person though too, and let me just gently, just gently um, throw your rubbish back at you. I, I disagree. I think if you go back to 1995, climate change had no meaning to anybody. Carbon dioxide levels were unknown by everybody. Global warming was not a term used by anybody. In 20 years, we have totally changed our understanding that there's a problem. That is real change. You say there hasn't been change. Yes, there has. There's been tremendous sea change. Look at the people in this room. This is a whole different world than it was in 95, and that gives me hope. Chris, what about the pro pro profit motive? Is there a substitute? There is a substitute. I was um, just thinking about that. There's a, a guy, Rob Costanza, in ANU, you may have heard of, and Paul Sutton, who we're hoping to get here to, to um, University of South Australia soon, who's an adjunct of the Barbara Hardy, have been developing a whole new way of thinking about economics, that, in fact, you value environment as a dollar value and that you incorporate that into any and every aspect to it. So um, 
effectively, I mean, you can think of that in terms of, of taxes or rebates or value because the environment has a calculable value to it. It's easy to do it with water. We're just starting to do it with water in this state. Water used to be free. The moment something's free, it gets devalued. The moment you put a dollar to it, people start thinking, how should I use it? Um, how best should I how conserve it and so forth? So this idea about an environmentally based economic society or a new form of economics is really powerful. So it's really an exciting area. Yes, but that doesn't cut out the profit motive, does it? It incorporates the profit motive, but, but it has a value for the environment. And you can actually make money out of conserving the environment, if you like. So it becomes part of the way we think about the economic construct of an organisation, of a community, or whatever. Well, any of you, how do you answer the, 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 the criticism that those countries which have had a non-profit society, famously the communist ones, have got the worst, the direst e environmental record, and those which have the wealth, such as Australia and America, can then afford, perhaps, to take the environmental measures that are needed? Have we? <laughs> I'm just asking the question. A, that, I think you could, you could make a case that many of those, the countries that had, you know, the, the socialist or communist platforms didn't um, do much for the environment and largely because, one, they had no resources, but secondly, they were shut off from the science of the rest of the world and there's a whole mass of other political machinations there. Uh, whilst we, I mean, we're all pretty much of the same view in this room, but there would be a large number of people outside this room or outside this park that would hold a very different view towards the environment as simply a way to make money regardless of the consequences. And the really important part of the democratic and capitalist process is to ensure that social value and environmental value and responsibility is built into the industry. That, that's what worries me a little bit. That's why I say, have we? Yeah. Peter Ward. Oh, I was just thinking that, thank God, Australia would never dump sediment in the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> Question over there, please, yes. Um, I'd be very interested to know if you could inform me a little bit more. Or, um, two things that I, I've heard recently, and maybe I'm misinformed, is one, Lockheed Martin have signed a contract to put in place in Victoria the largest uh, wave generator in the world. Does anyone know anything about that? And the other is that in South Australia this year, the first crop of tomatoes was grown completely with seawater from evaporative processes. And this will revolutionise agriculture. It's just happened this year. Does anyone know any more about those two things? Both of those things are happening. The, the wave technology is actually taking off around the world. There's uh, um, some really spectacular developments in the, the River Severn, Severn, I think, in England. Um, and in many tropical countries, that technology is taking off. We were even doing a little bit here in South Australia, and you may have heard trying to tow one of the, the wave things down past Karakalinga. It capsized and, and sank, unfortunately, which is... Um, not a good outcome, but um, in fact, wave technology is potentially very useful. There are some downsides. The biofouling agents that they have to use to keep the blades clean and things remains an issue. Uh, but that's part of the whole suite of renewable energy systems that, that can come on board. The tomato one is another example of you can't put all GM in the one, the one um, bucket. Yes, in fact, uh, there's some wonderful wave technology being done in Perth and there's a system whereby you've got a mechanical system underwater which then puts pressure on something that's coming up, the, the water itself. And you've got not just the energy, but you've got uh, a system whereby you get pure water coming out of the system as well. So you've got two things in one. And I think it's Carnegie, the, mm -hmm. is, the, is the firm over there, have made a statement in the last couple of months saying that their technology has risen one level higher. But the interesting thing is, you've got a great number of these really exciting technologies which are underinvested. One of the ones which I find mo most exciting is the uh, geothermal energy, for example. Not the obvious ones which uh, are fostered, say, in South Australia, but also in the Latrobe Valley. The professor of physics at the University of Melbourne, uh, Rachel Webster, has fostered something which involves leaving the, the brown coal on the surface 
and underneath that, the blanket of coal keeps the heat there for you to exploit by squirting down CO2, and out comes the heat, and the idea is you could keep Victoria going with half its energy for the next, what, several hundred years. So why isn't it done? Investment money. And investment money can cover any number of those sorts of technologies. I just want to say something. In France, they have been trying to do geothermal for 30 years in a place near Strasbourg. And fortunately, not only um, as a result poor because the heat seems to move around, but also there are some people now that complain that their house is full of cracks and all that just in this area. So I think one of the reasons it hasn't taken off there, for example, it's because it seems really difficult to tackle. But my question earlier was, I don't understand why in Australia we are one of the last countries where we give out so many plastic bags in all the supermarket, and also how we don't collect in each, um, in each store that has sells fluorite, we don't collect them back and all that. It seems what me as an individual could I do to change that? Do you believe in things like change.org that you, that by signing a petition you could actually change things or is that impossible? Like, you know. Peter Ward. Yeah, I agree with the plastic bags. Again, in Seattle, we've outlawed them. But I was at a TED talk. It was so fascinating. Crows are very smart. A guy built a crow vending machine where the crow is taught to pick up a plastic bag. It drops it in the garbage, and it gets a crow treat. <laughs> crows are damn smart. Now, could you imagine all your really ruddy crows growing around here picking up your plastic bags? This can happen. I mean, it's just this out-of-the-box thinking that you can do. They're, they're awful creatures, but let's, let's exploit them. You know the, you know the crows are the, the really important football uh, team here. In, um, I, so I, you've I, now I, got a whole lot of footballers running around collecting well, plastic bags. Excuse me, you're forgetting the microparticles. Whatever plastic bag you use, the microparticles in the water uh, don't di dissolve. I would actually just like to, to follow up on your point because I think that the, the plastic bag legislation and the change in behaviour here has actually been really quite profound. When um, they brought in the, the move to remove plastic bags and replace them with the, the linen bags and the shopping bags at, at Coles and Woolworths, uh, there was great apprehension at, at high levels that people might complain, they might start fights at the checkout, demanding their plastic bags, and in fact, um, Woolworths had huge stockpiles of plastic bags on standby the day they removed them, ready to roll them out again and just go, to hell with it, we're going to provide them again. But people didn't do it. They were happy to accept the other, buy the reusable bags, buy the cornstarch bags, uh, but most importantly, be able to bring your own bag, do your shopping and take it home. Now, most people do it and accept it, and then there was the rather strange pushback after... 18 months or two years of not having plastic bags and someone complained that, that they didn't have any plastic bags to line their little bins with, uh, <laughs> which they used to use their shopping bags. So shouldn't shopping bags come back so that we have things to line our, our little garbage bag with? It's just that there's always someone who will take a step backwards. Mm. But the community step forward around removing shopping bags was incredibly profound. It's a bit like the, you know, the five, ten, ten cent thing on cans and, and bottles. We're really proud in this state that we have that. That was yeah. a really adventurous move 25 years ago. Look how we all do it. It's been great. One last question. We've only just got time. So give the mic oh, to someone. Um, I'm not sure if this has been mentioned, but um, we're talking about fires, whether the, um, the forestry industry that have, you know, used the burn-off method that's contributing massively to fires, uh, to the pollution. But secondly, nuclear power, um, you need to include the um, environmental cost for the tailings dams. That's not included in the budget, and that's a massive cost on the planet. Um, thirdly, GMOs. There's just recently studies come out about the um, pollution that's coming off, not only from the, the herbicides, pesticides, etc., running off because of the chelating of nutrients in the soil, excess topsoils going off and damaging the reefs, in increasing CO2 in our water. So that is actually a, a contributor to um, um, our problems with the climate. Is that a question? The question is around that, because that wasn't mentioned. When we talk about GMOs, it's complicated, it's not been tested, and if you're talking about health, 
there's also complications there there there? about the runoff, whether the people are aware that that is increasing amounts of pesticides running off into our oceans, causing climate change, basically, it was come out about a is month ago. Is there a ago. question there? What about the GMO runoff? What about the GMO runoff? It's bad. Yeah. Look, you're, you're, you're right. And the, the important thing is to have the sensible debate as the science unfolds. This is actually a different way of thinking about the science than the old way of we're scientists here, we'll do it, we'll implement it, then we'll go, uh-oh, and the community just has to One put up with the downsides of it. By working together, you work through those, you accept that those are very real issues that need to be developed on a case-by-case -case basis and treated early so that we um, can actually solve the problems as they unfold. Thank you very much. Well, three threats to biodiversity. I was talking to Peter Owen, Chris Daniels, and Peter Ward. And Chris Daniels is going to be signing books down the back over there. So thank you very much, and thank you, panel. And thank you. Thank you.